Okay, we're in the book of Haggai, uh, chapter 1, and this morning we're starting at verse 9. So we introduced the book last week and covered the first part of it, but uh, let's go ahead and open with a word of prayer. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you for uh, the things we can learn from it, and we do pray that as we study uh, this old, old book this morning that we can make new and current applications in our lives, that we can see that the principles uh, that we can pull out of Haggai are just as applicable as they are then as they are today. Lord, and we just pray that you'll help us to understand, help to affect our hearts, help us to um, walk more uh, closely to you and more effectively in your service. Lord, we pray that you bless our time now as we go through this book. In Christ's name, amen. Okay, so this morning to, to get our uh, bearings, let's go ahead and read the whole first chapter. It's only 15 verses, so it's not too long. In the second year of King Darius, on the first day of the sixth month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai, to Zerubbabel, son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, son of Jehoshaphat, the high priest. Thus said the Lord of hosts, These people say the time has not yet come to rebuild the house of the Lord. Then the, word of, then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, It is in time for you yourselves to be living in your panel houses, while this house remains in ruin. Now therefore thus says the Lord of hosts, Consider your ways. You have sown much, but harvest little. You eat, but there is not enough to be satisfied. You drink, but there is not enough to become drunk. You put on clothing, but no one is warm enough. And he who earns, earns wages to put into a purse with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple, that I may, be, that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but behold, it comes to little. When you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts? Because of my house, which lies desolate, while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the heavens have withheld their dew, and the earth its crops. And I have called for a drought on the land, and the hills, and on the grain, and the new wine, and the oil, on what the ground brings forth, on man and beast, and all their labors. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shekiah, and uh, Josiah, <coughs> the son of Jechadiah, the high priest with all of the remnants of the people obeyed the voices of the Lord, their God, and the word of Haggai, the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the Lord and the people <coughs> and the people showed reverence for the Lord. And Haggai, the Lord's messenger, gave this message to them <coughs> of the Lord to the people. I am with you, declares the Lord. Because the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people, and they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God. On the 24th day of the sixth month, in the second year of Darius the king. 
Okay, so last year we saw that, uh, or last week, excuse me, uh, I was looking at the word years in my notes. Um, last week we saw that they, they'd started building the temple when they had returned to Jerusalem and they stopped because of the opposition. And for 15 years they hadn't done anything on the temple. And it wasn't all because of fierce opposition. They really did not show a lot of initiative. Um, so God sent Haggai to uh, Joshua and Zerubbabel on the first day of the sixth month of the second year of Darius the king in order to get them back working again on rebuilding the temple. Now in the meantime, they were building, at least the, the wealthy ones, were building luxury homes. The paneled homes had wood paneling on the inside of the masonry walls, and that was a sign of luxury. And they were basically neglecting God's house. And God knew it. God knew the attitudes of their heart, and he knew they were neglecting the temple. So he reminded them, he said, now look around, look at your whole situation. Economically, you're not all doing that well. There were some rich who were living in luxury, but most of the people were not. They were uh, impoverished. Um, but he said, now, now look, at, look at your situation. You're not doing that well. And then he very bluntly gives them the order, uh, go up in the mountains, get wood, and rebuild a temple. He told them what he wanted them to, to do. So this morning, starting in verse 9, let's look at verses 9 through 11 first. It says, you look for much, but behold, it comes to little, and you bring it home, I blow it away. Why, declares the Lord of hosts, because of my house, which lies desolate, <coughs> while each of you runs to his own house. Therefore, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew, and the earth has withheld its produce. And I called for a drought on the land, on the mountains, on the grain, on the new wine, on the oil, on what the ground produces, on men, on cattle, and on all the labor of your hands. So I had asked last week if the people had made a connection between the fact that they were neglecting the temple and also that they were not doing well economically. Do you suppose there's a connection there? Well, this passage here, God makes it very abundantly clear that, yeah, there is a connection. You're neglecting my temple and I'm withholding prosperity. Um, In other words, in a way, they, they seek prosperity, but they don't find it. Um, and what they do find disappears. And we see Jesus describing actually the opposite. If we turn to Matthew chapter 7. Which is not that far away. <laughs> Matthew chapter 7. Someone like to read verses 7 through 11 for us. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. He who seeks finds. And to him who knocks, it will be opened. For what man is there among you? If his son asks for bread, he will give him a stone. Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent. If you then, being evil, 
able know how to give God good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? Okay. Here's Jesus saying, if you seek, you'll find it. If you ask, you'll be given it. Um, you know, God's gracious. He wants to bless his children. So where was the problem back in Haggai's day? Well, they were not asking God to bless them. They were ignoring God. We talked about that uh, last week. Um, they were trying to get wealth on their own. They were not uh, placing themselves, I guess, under God's uh, providence. Um, and ignoring God, and, and God was not going to allow this to happen. God was not going to allow them to ignore him and prosper. This is enablement. We talked about that today with people who may be on drugs or something or on alcohol. You don't want to enable them. Well, God doesn't enable us when we ignore him or disobey him. We will not prosper. He does not support that. What it says here, he says, you look for much, but when it comes, he says, I blow it away. He takes responsibility for it. They're out working hard, and God makes sure that they don't get it. Um, and again, you know, why he says in verse 9, well, they're building their own houses. They're ignoring God's house. God does not bless those who ignore him. It also says they run to their own houses. You know, they're eager to go and work on their houses. In the meantime, they ignore God. Let's look at Malachi chapter 2, verse 2. Now looking at uh, the last three prophets, uh, Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi, these were the three prophets who came and ministered after the Jews returned to uh, Judea, after the captivity. Haggai came first specifically to bring a message of, you know, Go back and start rebuilding the temple. Zechariah is very, comes very shortly after that. He actually, I think, uh, his first message comes in this within a, a year of Haggai's message. But he talks about also, you know, restoring the temple. But he goes on. There, there's a lot of messianic uh, prophecy. Malachi might be here at this time. They're they're a little uncertain as to the exact dates, but it very possibly overlaps this. So he's talking about some of the attitudes, either at this time or within the next century. Somewhere in here, he's talking about the attitude of the Jews. <clears throat> so let's look at chapter 2 in Malachi. Does someone like to read verse 2? If you do not listen, and if you do not set your heart to honor my name, says the Lord Almighty, I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Yes, I have already cursed them. Because you have not set your heart to honor me. Okay. So they've not set their heart um, to honor God's name. And he, the message through Malachi is the same as we see here in Haggai. If you do not honor God, he will not bless. He'll take away the blessings. Um, and so how does he do this? We look at verse 10. He says, because of you, the sky has withheld its dew. So this is an example of extremely dry conditions. You know, we've had a long, dry summer. 
But if you go out in the morning, is there dew on the ground? Not every day. Yeah, not every day. <laughs> but most days you go out and, and there's a little bit of dew on the ground, even though it's been dry. So the absence of dew means it's extremely dry. Um, it also says the earth has withheld its produce. You know, it's not being productive. You know, this is one of those, in a sense, kind of a weird year for produce. We've had some things we've planted that just haven't produced anything. And, and so that's what's going on here. Um, and this fulfills God's covenant with Israel. If you go back under the law, this fulfills God's covenant with Israel. Let's go back to Leviticus chapter 26. Leviticus chapter 26. Someone would like to read verses 19 and 20 for us. So this describes exactly what's going on here. Um, to work hard, but not get any produce. Um, and this is uh, essentially this chapter, the first third of it is, here's how God's going to bless you if you are, obey me. you know. And then the latter two-thirds are the curses that come from disobedience. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 28. So you could make up a case that we're being cursed at this point. We should have some judgment on us if we're having poor crops. Well, we're not. <laughs> God hasn't made a covenant with us in particular like this. Uh, Deuteronomy 28. Somebody would like to read verses 23 and 24. And the heavens over your heads shall be bronze, and the earth under you shall be iron. The Lord will make the rain of your land powder. From heaven dust shall come down on you until you are destroyed. Okay, so this is very similar. This is actually this Deuteronomy is the second giving of the law, and this is a repetition of what we read earlier. But it does change a little bit. When they were looking for rain, they got dust. Um, kind of like the dust bowl of the 30s. Now, the Mosaic law was a covenant of works. And it was also very physical, very materialistic in a sense. It was not, you know, the promises and the curses here are not necessarily spiritual blessings and spiritual curses. They're physical. Um, if they obeyed, they would get blessing. If they disobeyed, they would get cursing. And the rewards were typically the land. The Jews would be in the land and stay in the land. Uh, They'd have prosperous crops, they'd have flocks, many flocks, they'd, and they'd also have protection from their enemies. So as you go through the whole Mosaic Law, that's the blessings that God gave them. Um, it wasn't so much a spiritual relationship as it was a physical relationship with their God. If you keep the commandments and do the, um, you know, don't worship idols, worship me as I 
gave you the regulations for worshiping me, then in return I will make sure that you live in the land, you're prosperous. Uh, and so it's a very much a physical blessing. Um, and it was works. But on the other hand, you know, God does demonstrate his grace in the midst of this over and over again. His long-suffering, his patience. They worshipped idols for centuries before God destroyed the nations. Centuries. He was very patient with them. He withheld that judgment. And then when he did judge them, he really did not give them all that they deserved. It wasn't as bad as what they deserved. Uh, and then he always res uh, preserved a remnant. When they deserved to be extinguished, he preserved a remnant. So he was gracious to them. Um, okay, now it's going back to Haggai. Looking at this passage, it talks about in verse uh, 11 of, these, of this section, God describes how extensive his discipline would reach. Um, it says all crops, all animals, all people, all their efforts would fail. Everything would fail. It was completely extensive, especially in an agrarian society. Um, they would all suffer. We have a couple of uh, illustrations in the prophets of these droughts that came upon Israel. Let's go to Jeremiah chapter 14. Jeremiah chapter 14. Mm -hmm. Okay, we're going to read verses 1 through 6, so why don't we read around again? So, Marie would like to start when you get there. 1 through 6, Jeremiah 14. This is the word of the Lord to Jeremiah concerning the drought. Judah mourns, <clears throat> her cities languish. They will they wail for the land, and they cry out, they, they their cry goes out from Jerusalem. The nobles send their servants for the water for water. They go to the cisterns, but find no water. They return with their jars unfilled, dismayed and despairing. They cover their heads. Because the ground is cracked, for there has been no rain on the land, the farmers have been put to shame. They have covered their heads. Even the doe in the field forsakes her newborn fawn because there is no grass. And the wild donkeys sit in a desolate place. They sniff at the wind like jackals. Their eyes fail because there was no grass. Okay. So everyone, this is this is a prophecy of. Um, well, Jeremiah was a prophet uh, in, is, in Judah, the southern kingdom, at the time when um, Babylon came and conquered them. So he's describing um, the drought. Uh, so this may be what's going on before uh, Babylon comes and conquers them, that God sent them a drought to try to get them to repent. And so that might be what Jeremiah is describing here. 
Um, but you see, everybody suffers. In verse 3, the nobles we talked about, that's, that's basically the wealthy ones. They send their servants out for water and they bring back mud, you know. <laughs> they can't find, even the nobles are suffering. Uh, it affects them. Um, we see the farmers, the, the, wild, the wildlife is suffering. Everyone is suffering. Um, then let's look at uh, Joel chapter 1. Joel ministered a couple centuries earlier than Jeremiah, and he's describing, uh, he's prophesying about a, a drought that will come in verses 17 through 20 in chapter 1. If someone would like to read that section for us. It's not quite as long as the last one. Okay, that's a pretty picturesque picture of a bad drought. You know, the earth's dry, you've been trying to plant your seeds under the clods, and uh, no f- grain, animals wander around looking for pasture. My cows get out when they want a new field. Yeah, they want, they want to go to the neighbors, right? <laughs> we, we, we rotate, so they're like... Oh. We're done at this field. Move this. <laughs> Move this to the next field, right. Well, there wasn't a next field. Everything was dried up. And forest fires. We don't know anything about that, do we? Um, as a result of the drought. So this is, as we saw when we read those passages in Leviticus and Deuteronomy, this is part of the Mosaic Covenant. This is what the covenant requires God to do when they disobey so he is fulfilling his responsibility under the covenant. That's why I'm glad we're under grace and not under works. <laughs> so, how do the recipients of this message respond to all these warnings here in the covenant? So, that brings us to verse 12, back in Haggai chapter 1, verse 12. <coughs> It says, then Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord, their God, and the words of Haggai the prophet, as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people showed reverence for the Lord. So we have Zerubbabel, the governor, Joshua, the high priest, and the people obeying the voice of the Lord here. Um, now, the people here are called the whole remnant of the people. And we'll see that term again in verse 14. They're called the whole remnant of the people or all the remnant of the people. And then in chapter 2, verse 2, again, they're called the remnant of the people. And so this remnant refers to the Jews who had returned to Judea. 
They were just a remnant of the people who had lived there in the past. So they returned again to Judea, and that's where this remnant is. Um, and I want to look at a couple of passages that talk about what is this remnant. Let's go to Genesis chapter 45. Genesis 45. This is the story. Genesis chapter 45. So this is a story of Joseph going to Egypt and, you know, storing up the grain and his family coming down and getting grain. And this is after he reveals himself to his brothers. So Genesis chapter 45, someone would like to read verse 7 for us. Okay, this is the first usage of this term remnant. And we see God is preserving a remnant. He saves or sends Joseph to preserve this remnant for him. Um, Pretty sad you have started the first generation, huh? Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so at this point, the, the remnant of Israel is all of it. <laughs> yeah, the, the, entire, the entire family. So the remnant is defined here. It's the, the core uh, of the people here. Let's turn to Isaiah chapter 37. <clears throat> we'll use it. A, look at a couple more places where we see the remnant. Isaiah chapter 37. And someone like to read verses 31 and 32. What's more, a remnant of the kingdom of Judah will take root below and bear fruit above. For out of the Jerusalem will come a remnant, and out of Mount Zion a band of survivors. The zeal of the Lord Almighty will accomplish this. Okay, so here's a promise of a future restoration, but it's a remnant that makes it through, you know, um, the context. I don't know if this is talking about... Um, you know, the destruction of Jerusalem or whether this is talking about the um, uh, great tribulation that's going to come upon Israel. But there will be a remnant who will be saved and they'll, they'll take root again. Um, and then finally, let's look at Micah chapter 7. And someone would like to read verse 18 for us. Okay, so while we were talking about the Mosaic Law and the, God's responsibility to discipline, we do still see his grace. He, he shows his grace despite that. Um, and here he pardons her iniquity. He passes over the rebellious acts of the remnant of his possession. So it's, it's not just some group of people, but it's his possession here. And so when you see this term remnant, it means this is... like a special group of people who are precious in God's eyes and he preserves them. Um, And so, you know, when the people make this choice to obey God, um, they're no longer referred to as this people, which we saw back in verse 2. 
It says, thus says the Lord of hosts, this people says. That's very impersonal. But now it's the remnant. And the remnant is a group of people who are precious to God. So we see this restoration of this relationship with God. Um, we also see it in a phrase uh, twice in this verse. It says, the Lord their God. They obeyed the voice of the Lord their God as the Lord their God had sent him. So again, we see the possessive pronoun being used. God was their God. So he is calling them a remnant, which is a special term. And, that it's, and God is their God as well. So we see this relationship uh, back being corrected as a result of their uh, uh, decision to obey him. You know, it does say that in this, this verse that they obeyed the voice of the Lord their God. Well, they didn't hear his voice. They heard Haggai's voice. And so this tells us they, you know, they recognized Haggai as an authorized representative of God and that his words were God's words because God had sent him. So they recognized where the message had come from. And finally, it says they showed reverence for the Lord or they feared the Lord. So for 15 years, they had basically ignored him. They'd shown him no respect, whatever, basically. Now they have a direct message from God. They repented and they show him the proper respect. Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. God sometimes has to remind his people that they have to respect him and show him the proper deference. Um, Let's look at Hebrews chapter 12. Someone would like to read verses 28 and 29. Okay, so here's a reminder to the church um, to remember to serve God with reverence and awe. And this word reverence, I think, does include a little bit of idea of fear. He goes on to say, our God is a consuming fire. He is awesome. And so we have to remember that, to revere him. Um, you know, on the one hand, he's very close to us. Uh, and there should be a close relationship. You know, Abraham was called a friend of God. We should look at God as being a friend, but not look at him as just being another buddy-buddy type. You know, He's still God. <laughs> he's the God of the universe. <laughs> uh, he's the consuming fire. So... On the one hand, we want to know him well and be close to him. On the other hand, we have to maintain that distinction that he is God. Okay, going on to verse 13, back in Haggai. It says, Then Haggai, the messenger of the Lord, spoke by the commission of the Lord to the people, saying, I am with you, declares the Lord. Now this verse uh, really emphasizes the divine authority of Haggai's message. 
because most of the translations say something to the effect that Haggai is the Lord's messenger and he spoke the Lord's message. So we have the repetition of the term message. He's a messenger with the message. He was God's messenger, God's message. Um, now, I read my New American Standard. It says, you know, he's a messenger of the Lord. And he spoke by the commission of the Lord. Well, it's kind of an interpretation of, of the term here. But the emphasis is that he has come with God's message. Um, and it's God's word. And I think as, you know, as we approach the Bible, um, we need to treat all of it as God's word. We should never try to twist it or interpret it in order to make it say what we want it to say, what we want it to say. We should never ignore the parts that don't agree with what we want it to say. Um, we should take it as literally as possible. And again, we take our beliefs from the Bible. We don't read our beliefs into the Bible or impose them on the Bible. It is God's word and we need to treat it that way. That's part of our reverence for God. Now the message here in verse 13 is, uh, at least in English, it's only four words. So it doesn't seem very significant, but it is really. He says, I am with you. So this is the most high God, the God of the universe, the creator. He gives them a command and then he says, I am with you. So what this means is that first, they have authority to go back to work. They don't have to send a message off to King Darius and say, can we start rebuilding our temple? No, the God of the universe said, go build my temple. So they don't have to worry about that, which is probably one of the reasons why they avoided rebuilding it in the first place. Second, you know, they have God's protection. They were surrounded by enemies. They were opposed. We saw that later in the book of Nehemiah where they opposed the rebuilding of the walls uh, by force. So they have God's protection. They don't need to be afraid of their enemies. It also means they have God's provision. They have God's power. So they have all the resources they need to do what God told them to do. God is with them. He has all the resources. And finally, they will have success. If you've got the God of the universe with you and you're doing what he told you to do, it's going to succeed. Um, now, this phrase, I am with you, uh, it occurs all throughout the Old Testament. And we'll look at a few of them, some of the more significant ones. Let's look at Isaiah chapter 41. Isaiah chapter 41. And someone like to read verses 8 through 10. Taken from the ends of the earth and called from its farthest regions, 
and said to you, You are my servant. I have chosen you and have not cast you away. Fear not, for I am with you. But be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. Yes, I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Okay. So first he says, you know, I called you. You're my people. Abraham is my friend. You know, he establishes that they're special people in his sight. And then verse 10. Don't be afraid. I am with you. The God of the universe is with them. They are not to be afraid. They're not to be anxious. Let's turn over a few pages to chapter 43. Isaiah chapter 43. And here I would like to have someone read verses 1 and 2 and then skip down and read verse 5. Again, God says, you are my special, I created you, you know, I've redeemed you, I've called you by name. And then he says, I am with you, I'll protect you. And again, in verse 5, we, <laughs> this, these two phrases go together, do not fear, and for I am with you. you know, if God is with us, uh, who can be against us? That's Romans 8.31, that's a good verse to remember. Uh, if God is for us, who can be against us? So let's look at a, a New Testament verse or two. So there's, there's God's promise to Israel. They were his special people. He was with them. He would protect them and bless them. Let's look at Matthew chapter 28. This is the Great Commission. <clears throat> Matthew chapter 28. And would someone like to read verses 18 through 20? And Jesus came and said to them, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Okay. So this is the Great Commission. We're told to go out to evangelize and disciple. And we've been talking about evangelism. We started on Wednesday night and kind of came up with, you know, why, where are the reasons why we don't? <laughs> and this pretty well answers it. You, got, you know, Jesus says, I am with you always. And he's speaking again here as the God of the universe. So, and we shouldn't be afraid. We shouldn't feel like we're going to be failures. God's word is powerful. God will give us success. Not everybody we talk to will be saved. But here's this promise that I will be with you. And it's given to the church. It's given to us. 
um, and we can be assured of success. So this, when you start thinking of you know all the reasons why why shouldn't I go talk to this person or why shouldn't I do this, or God says I'm with you, go do it. We have a command and we have the promise that He'll be with us. I want to look at one specific case in Acts chapter 18. I believe this is when Paul is in Corinth. Acts chapter 18. Someone would like to read verses 8 through 10 for us here. Crispus, the ruler of the synagogue, believed in the Lord together with his entire household. And many of the Corinthians, hearing Paul, believed and were baptized. And the Lord said to Paul one night in a vision, Do not be afraid, but go on speaking and do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one will attack you to harm you. For I have many in this city who are my people. Okay, so here's a specific vision given to Paul where God says, I am with you. Uh, Don't be afraid. You will have success. Because I am with you in this. Do what I tell you to do, and we'll be successful. So this was a very encouraging message here um, for the Jews when they hear that God is with them. So that leaves us with two verses here at the end of the uh, chapter. And I have several pages of notes and only a couple minutes, so I think we'll stop here. (laughs) But it shows a response, um, that they did respond to God's message. Um, and and this is this is typical of a of a prophet's message. You know, when you go through and you read the prophets, so often they come and they condemn sin. They call the people to repent. And then when the people repent, they give them a message of hope of the future and encourage them. So we see that again repeated here in the book of Haggai. Uh-huh. But let's stop here for now. And uh, Joe, would you like to sure. close for us? I was mentioning that Jonah didn't like that part when they repented. No. <laughs> Dear Lord, we do thank you for your word, for the way it speaks to us, the way it's a living word. We thank you for that. We thank you for the history we have, but then we realize that the God that was there is the same God we have today, and he hasn't changed. We thank you that you are a non-changing God. We thank you that you watch out after us. We don't have the covenants of the Old Testament, but we have the covenant of the New Testament, which is Christ's blood and how you how are, we're with you. We just pray, Lord, that you will guide and direct. Beat us where you want us to go. Let us be diligent where you want us to be and, and strong and, and speaking out for you when you want us to do that. In your pressure, we pray. Pray for this hour, then pray for the next hour to come. In your pressure, we pray. Amen. Amen. Oh.